space, the final frontier for supply chains. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The skies above us are becoming increasingly cluttered with satellites, many of them launched to create so-called mega-constellations that promise to provide high-speed Internet all around the world. With that surge comes the greater possibility of collisions between spacecraft. Satellites need in-space propulsion systems that allow them to maneuver in orbit and rapidly reposition when necessary. That's the business of Phase 4, a company that builds those engines. But what kind of a supply chain is needed to ensure that the units are produced to order at the requisite level of quality and no margin of error? We'll find out in my conversation today with Laura Overly, Director of Supply Chain for Phase 4. She discusses the challenges her company faces in meeting a recent surge in demand and keeping tabs on the suppliers whose components go into an engine that's roughly the size of a toaster. She'll tell how she drew on lessons of the automotive and aerospace industries for managing the making of this unique product. So here is my conversation with Laura Overly. Laura Overly, welcome to the show. Hi, Bob. It's so great to be here today. Laura, would you please give me a brief description of what is Phase 4 and its role in the space systems manufacturing supply chain? Yeah, absolutely. Phase 4 is an in-space propulsion company. You might be aware that there are satellites and an international space station in orbit above us. Many of these spacecraft use electric engines to help them stay in orbit, to get to higher orbit, or to avoid collisions with other spacecraft and we build these electric engines here at Phase 4. Phase 4 spun up in 2015 out of the University of Michigan's Propulsion Lab. We saw a lot of the challenges that the Internet mega constellations like OneWeb were having with their propulsion systems. So the time and money costs for these mega constellations were becoming prohibitive because of the cost of the propulsion systems that they were relying on called hull thrusters. They are very challenging to manufacture. And additionally, they're also very expensive in pure dollar cost as well as long lead times. I'm trying to picture what one of these electric propulsion systems looks like. Is it a large, small thing, or can you just give me a sense of that? Our engines are small. They're about the size of a toaster. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're very tiny, but other systems can be quite large, so it just depends on what they're propelling. So our product is targeted towards small satellites. What does your supply chain look like? Do you have a a number of suppliers that supply you? I mean, you're kind of in the middle of a supply chain. You supply downstream, but upstream from you, are there multiple tiers of suppliers on whom you're drawing in order to gather together the components that make up your engines? Yeah, absolutely. We have many specialized suppliers. So a lot of the technology that goes into the propulsion system have very unique capabilities. So we search these suppliers out. And as a company, we are really focused on commercial off-the-shelf parts, which makes us a little bit unique for propulsion systems. So we have a variety of suppliers that we use. It sounds that since you're taking from off the shelf so much that maybe 
unlike in some areas of space and aerospace manufacturing, you don't necessarily have big security concerns about the ins and outs of your of your technology. Is that the case? I mean, you, that you have to vet suppliers and worry about security and things like that and quality control? Yeah, we do worry about quality control quite a bit. We make sure that we, in our selection of a supplier, we test those uh, commercial off-the-shelf parts rigorously. They go through temperature, cycle tests, and a qualification for quality. We really just run them through the mill to make sure that they're going to hold up in the space environment. So it is a concern for us. Where we start to have more challenges is when we go through special processing on custom parts. So if we have a metal and it has to go to a sub-tier supplier, we're not always privy to who those suppliers are and quality that we can get back may not always meet the needs that we have. So we have to have a very good relationship with those types of suppliers. Direct relationship with the sub-tier suppliers or do you depend on the direct supplier to kind of serve as the mediator between you and those further upstream? We depend on the direct supplier to manage that relationship. We want to be able to trust our suppliers to be able to deliver a quality product and that they manage their entire process to our quality standards. And are you sourcing both domestic and internationally from suppliers, or where, where is this stuff coming from? We prefer domestic because we are under EAR, so that's Export Administration Regulations, for the U.S. government. Our technology is qualified under that, so it makes our life a lot easier if we source from the U.S. However, with that being said, there is great technology coming out of Europe that intrigues us, especially on the miniaturization of electronics that we are looking forward to incorporating into our product. So we do investigate those components, and if there's something that we are interested in, we make sure to go through the proper channels to bring that into country. So tell me how this works, the way that you put together your components. What exactly is a mega constellation? Yeah, mega constellation is, they're calling it new space. And in new space, there is a desire to provide Wi-Fi to the entire world. So companies like OneWeb, Amazon, SpaceX are launching hundreds to thousands of satellites to provide this coverage worldwide. To do this, it is a manufacturing challenge that aerospace has not seen for like in-space propulsion, in-space satellites. Most of the time they're made in one to ten satellites at a time, not thousands. So this is a new paradigm that aerospace is coming into and we're taking a lot from automotive, which has been very helpful for the mass manufacturing. But we have a lot more technical challenges in making sure that materials comply with the environment that they're going to see in outer space. From automotive, you say mass manufacturing. Is that really the lesson? I mean, because it seems to me that they're both considered technological constructs, but what you do is quite different from somebody who's building a car. So how much can you really draw lessons from the automotive industry other than the ability to scale? Really, that it's the ability to scale. And that is the biggest challenge for aerospace, to be able to hit those numbers and with efficiency. So to produce 50 propulsion systems per month is something that is new to be able to achieve. And so doing things like Kanban, Kaizen, those initiatives that started from Toyota are really important to us to be able to be successful. You rely to a certain degree on kitting, is that correct? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, kitting is really important. So it increases our speed to be able to put the units together. 
So we have very complicated small parts and they have to go together with high accuracy and with high speed. So one way that we can help that and help the technician on the floor is to make sure that we are doing smart kitting and laying things out in order of the instructions. So somebody doesn't have to think about it as much and it reduces our mistakes and increases our quality. How many parts go into one of these toaster size engines exactly? Right now it's 300 parts. We are looking to optimize that because weight is everything and it costs money for our customers to launch. So every kilogram that we save and provide that to our customer is a huge dollar savings for them. So we're looking to reduce that and we're right about seven kilograms right now for our propulsion system. Do you manufacture at just one site putting these things together? Yes, we are. We manufacture them. Where is that? Where is your factory? Oh, our factory is in El Segundo, California. Oh, okay. Kind of the uh, the heartland of aerospace and, and space technology, or at least one of them in the country. It is. We're right in aerospace row. And you said you're putting out now upwards of 50 a month? That's our goal. Still in new product development. And we have a contract for 10 systems this year so far for 2020. And we're building those and delivering those as we speak. When you launched, pardon the pun, back in 2015, what kind of production levels were you seeing at the very beginning? So that was really some research and development to take a research idea and to make a product out of it. And at that time, it was for CubeSats. So it was really proving ourselves. The company won a contract for DARPA. And DARPA is a government agency that helps fund unique and creative ideas to advance technology. So they're really critical to new ideas in aerospace. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Okay, so only recently have you, as you say, a lot of R&D at the very start. But then when did you actually start ramping up production of the components of the the engine? So back in 2018, the first product for CubeSat was created and qualified for flight. And we started getting feedback from our customers. What they really wanted was not CubeSats and the CubeSat market also started to trend down. So we changed our product focus to small satellites because they were requesting more power, larger engines. And we switched last year and developed and productized within a year, which is quite fast for a propulsion system. And we will be launching our first small sat propulsion engine in June, actually three of them. It seems like you occupy a unique niche in the space systems manufacturing supply chain. Do you have competitors who do exactly the same thing as you? Yeah, we do have competitors. There's a company called Orbion. There's another one called Impulsion. Impulsion makes slightly smaller engines than we do, but we're all different and have different capabilities. So we aren't necessarily copying one another, but we occupy some of the same space, but we have different needs that would meet different customer requirements. Is this the same kind of technology, pardon my ignorance here, just someone who's seen a lot of movies without knowing how it works in the real world, but you know, as I understand it, when when, uh, astronauts do spacewalks and the like, they have small thrusters uh, in the packs on their back, and I wonder if that is somehow the same kind of technology or concept, or is that not anywhere near what you're doing here with engines for space satellites? It's not 
quite the same technology, but it is the same concept. So a person's about the size of a small satellite. Small satellites are generally the size of a small refrigerator is how we like to describe it. So our technology just keeps and maintains that satellite in orbit and maneuvers around with all of the mega constellations that are being launched. Mm -hmm. And I think the latest number is close to 30,000 that are through the FCC licenses. They have to be able to maneuver around one another so they don't collide and also maintain their orbit for the lifetime of the satellite, which is anywhere from five to 10 years. So your engines can respond, I, I guess they respond kind of on a moment's notice, or they can adjust the position of satellite if there's a, suddenly in danger of colliding with another one. I, I just wonder if these situations come up unexpectedly and your engines are required to make adjustments accordingly? That is correct. One thing that's very unique about our engine is that it does respond pretty instantaneously compared to other technology. It only takes us a second to start the engine and fire, which is an advancement over other competitors. Mm -hmm. And it usually takes them quite a bit longer to be able to respond. And those seconds are priceless just for what you were describing for avoiding a collision. And if a collision happens, it will take out an orbit for a satellite customer. So they can't operate in that orbit any longer. Yeah, but boy, as you, as you say, as more and more of these satellites get launched in a mega constellation, the possibility of collision goes up exponentially, I would think. So uh, there's got to be a point at which we have to worry about there being too many of these things that collisions be just become, even with engines that can correct, it still seems like the risk just, be, just goes up and up. Yes, absolutely it does, and it's something that we're very focused on. And we're working on designing into our engines, not just for supply chain, but also for demisability. So when a satellite comes and deorbits, it can burn up in atmosphere completely. So tell me a little bit more. You mentioned about the push for standardization and especially miniaturization. What's going on there and just how miniature can these parts get based on and compared with what they were earlier? A good example is our power processing unit. Power processing units typically tend to be the size of an old VHS VCR, and we're taking it down to probably the size of a large iPhone or like a Samsung phone. So the cell phone industry has inspired and created a lot of technology advancements that we're capitalizing on in our own electronics, and that size goes way down, which is delivers a cost savings to our customer in that weight. So our electronics actually sit in a very small space compared to the large box that it used to be. So if you describe it earlier as about the size of a toaster, maybe in just a few years, what would you compare it to? Yeah, that would be very ideal. It depends on power that the customer wants or how much thruster power they would like. So it all kind of will depend on that. But the electronics, if they keep improving, will be able to keep miniaturizing. And then also with the mechanical system, so we have a fluid system with the tank that holds all of our propellant, is also really important to downsize because of the weight savings there with all those metals. And we take a lot of inspiration from the medical device community. 
Laura, if you wouldn't mind a personal question, you have deep experience in managing supply chains for advanced technology manufacturing and testing, uh, especially, it seems like, in aerospace or space. And I'm just wondering, how you, how'd you get started in this business? Really by chance. <laughs> mm-hmm. The economy had turned down around 2000, 2001, and I was just looking for a job to support myself through school. And I had a friend who worked at a NASA facility in New Mexico, and she asked if I would like a job. And I said, yes, I would love a job. (laughs) And that's how I got started. And I really was fortunate to be a part of a really good group. And they helped pay for my college education while going to school. And I got indoctrinated into space. From a very early time, it seems like once you were in school studying it, that was your career path, right? Yeah, Yeah, it was. And I never expected it to be. I had intended to go into advertising and marketing, and my career just took a turn with the experience that I gained working at that facility. So it's a pretty inspirational STEM story. It's great uh, that you're able, able to do that. So just to get back to the larger question about how you manage the supply chain for Phase 4, can you just sum up for me the lessons you've learned about managing supply chain risk in this particular sector? Yeah, it's important to really develop good relationships with suppliers. I'm a firm believer in developing that partnership and working through any issues that come up. So that way they really do understand what your technical requirements are, what your customer requirements are. And once you kind of work through those bumps, you really start to work towards a much better product. And then there's cost savings that they can provide and ideas once they understand what your business is about. So really just developing a deep relationship with a supplier and then beneficial for both sides. And that's something that I have learned as opposed to just jumping from supplier to supplier. If there's a moment that you don't like something that has occurred. And as you say, the need for absolute visibility up multiple tiers of the supply chain as well. It is. It's very critical. And it's one that some customers actually insist on. Some of our customers want to know every step of the process. They want to have a complete supply chain understanding of what's happening to the product. Well, it seems like phase four as a company is just in the right place at the right time, given this enormous increase in space technology going on with all the satellites going up, as you said, and all the I guess the private rocket projects are also maybe just tangential to that, but there's a lot of attention being paid to this industry. And by the way, I guess uh, if you don't mind my mentioning Phase 4's own podcast called P4 What For? I guess we can recommend that our listeners go to that to hear like little one-minute or five-minute or three-minute uh, answers to quick questions. That's very entertaining. Other than that, though, Laura Overly, I want to thank you so much for spending time on educating me on the space systems manufacturing supply chain and exactly what Phase 4 is doing in that area. So thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you, Bob. I really appreciate it and have enjoyed my time with you. That was my conversation with Laura Overly of Phase 4, talking about how it manages a space system supply chain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. 
For any comments or suggestions on this or any episode, email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.